Well, good morning, everybody. On the morning of the 8th of June, 10 days ago, it was a peaceful, sunny morning in the town of Annecy, in the southeast of France, in the foothills of the Alps. Parents and grandparents were playing with their children uh, at the local playground by the lake. This peaceful morning was suddenly broken with screams when a 31-year-old man jumped into the playground and began stabbing people, adults and children alike. Although thankfully nobody was killed, six people were stabbed, including two adults and four children as young as only 22 months old. How does news like this make you feel? How do you respond when such a terrible thing happens to those so young and defenceless, so innocent? The toll may well have been far worse had it not been for the intervention of Henry Danselm, a young 24-year-old Catholic man who happened to be walking through the park at the time. Henry, amongst other bystanders, chased off the attacker, shielding himself with his backpack until police arrived and the attacker was arrested. Interviewed after the attack, Henry said, I didn't even think about it. The brain turned off. It was impossible to let people be attacked by this person who seemed to be a furious madman. He tried at one point to attack me. Our eyes met and I realised it was someone not in any normal state. There was something very bad in him that had to be stopped. I think Henry's reaction sums up how most of us would feel. Something very bad is happening and must be stopped. Something has to be done about it. This type of thing can't be allowed to stand. How can we stand by and just watch this happen? We shout, we raise the alarm, we call for the police, for the ambulance. We put our bodies between the threat and the victims. We give first aid to the victims. We chase and incapacitate the attacker. I'm going to suggest that all of these feelings that we might have of shock and horror and all these responses that we might have to events like these are reflections of righteous anger. Perhaps Henry or the others in the park that morning may not have used these words to describe their feelings and reactions in the moment. But nevertheless, I think it's apt, and we're going to explore this idea this morning. Next week, we're going to be looking at sinful anger, and we usually think about anger in this negative light. Um, It's something bad that we ought to avoid. But today, we're looking at righteous anger. When is anger a good thing? What makes anger a good thing? When should we embrace or encourage anger and what might that look like? So firstly, in the context of the Bible, what is anger? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word most commonly referred to with anger is ap or af, some variant of that. And this refers to the nostril or the face. Possibly it's an onomatopoeia, af. Um, So the associated image, I think, is one of rapid breathing through the nostrils, someone with a full head of steam, an angry bull looking to charge down a matador, you know, that sort of image. 
In the New Testament, we find two Greek words that have slightly different associations. Firstly is thumos, which is often translated wrath, um, which is also associated with a sudden outburst, um, a quick triggering, but often also a quick cooling off or fall of that emotion of anger. The second one is orge, which is often translated anger. And this is usually associated with a slow, burn, a slow sort of burning anger that takes place over a period of time, simmering and stewing over time. I don't want to make too much of that distinction because the words are often used seemingly interchangeably. But I just bring that up to highlight this idea that how anger can manifest itself in both of these ways. It can be a sudden outburst that almost seemingly comes from nowhere or can be a slow burn that waxes and wanes over a long period of time. So just keep these both in your mind as we talk this morning. So you get this image of anger as a very raw, very basic, you might almost say primitive emotion or response. And I'd suggest that it's a very natural emotion. As we'll talk about, there are situations in which anger is the correct and righteous response. So it's normal to feel anger. The interesting thing about the Bible's use of anger or wrath is that it's used far more often of God than of mankind, which would be a surprising thing if you thought of anger only as a sinful action or emotion. But especially in the Old Testament, we find many, many references to God's anger in the realm of around 180 times, compared to only about 45 times talking about a person's anger. And when we see references to God's anger or wrath, it's exclusively as a response to sin. In other words, anger properly understood is a righteous response to sin and sinfulness. God, who is a righteous God, is angry at sin. So what we're going to do now is we're going to skim through several uh, passages that talk about God's anger and we're going to notice several aspects to, to this righteous anger of God. How does it arise? What does God do with this anger? What can we do about this anger? And what does that teach us about our own anger? Is, it, is our own anger appropriate or righteousness? And are we responding to that anger righteously. So firstly, one thing I want to notice is that God's anger is kindled. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroys you from off the face of the earth. So the word kindled here suggests that slow burn that we were talking about before. Um, Something that comes from a small ember and builds into something larger and more powerful. The result talked about here is destruction, um, but that's the end result of something that started slowly like a fire. It isn't hasty or rash, 
But it starts somewhere. And here, it's Israel worshipping other gods. It's this sinful behaviour of Israel that's kindling God's anger, getting it going. Another word we see is is that God's anger is provoked. Similarly, in Isaiah chapter 15, verses 1 to 5, God says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, Here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, I'm too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. So the word here that um, he says provoked, um, you've provoked me, is actually the same word translated often as anger. So God's being provoked here to anger, to his very face, by an obstinate people who continuously flout God's law. And this is in response to God's long-standing kindness and graciousness towards them as a people. They didn't seek God, but God sought them. God opened himself up to them, and they, they've given him nothing but grief in response. It says, like smoke in his nostrils all day long. You get that sense of this long-standing irritation, um, even repulsion by their behaviour. But again, this isn't coming out of nowhere. God isn't angry because of anything he has done or any failing of his. He hasn't let Israel down. It's not his doing, but it's Israel's doing. It's Israel's sin that's provoking God's anger. God's anger is also delayed or deferred from Isaiah chapter 48. You've neither heard nor understood, from of old your ears have not been open. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You are called a rebel from birth. For my own name's sake I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise I hold it back from you, so as not to destroy you completely. See, I've refined you, though not as silver. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. Notice here how Israel is obviously guilty, yet God is willing to hold back his anger, both in time, he's not going to do anything to them yet, but also in scale. He's not going to destroy them completely. In other words, God's patient in acting upon his anger. He's not acting right away or rashly. And even when he does, he's holding something back. Um, He's not doing all he could do or might do. Instead, he has a different goal in mind, testing and refinement. His ultimate desire isn't in their destruction, even though that's something they might deserve, but his interest is in building righteousness in his people. Yes, by fire and affliction, um, but that produces the end results of purity 
and goodness and holiness. That's what God wants over and above destruction. There's hope there, something good on the other side of this outpouring of God's anger that we can look forward to with hope. In other times, God completely relents of his anger. From Hosea chapter 11. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart has changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. So notice here that although the guilt of Ephraim and Israel hasn't necessarily gone away, God chooses to withhold his anger from them. He won't inflict that same judgment, referring here to the exile, on them again. It's a bit like after the flood, where God, another obvious example of God outpouring his anger at a sinful people, but after that he says, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to flood the world again. Um, Mankind would, of course, persist in sin in the future, but he won't do that again. And he's not going to send Israel into exile like he did again. But also notice that it's God's love and compassion for his people that holds the day here. His anger at their sin is righteous and justified, but love wins out. So what, what motivates God to relent of his anger. Let's have a look at Second Chronicles chapter 12. Um, this is in the days after Solomon's reign and, and this kingdom is divided. <clears throat> and we read there, Second Chronicles chapter 12. Then a prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam and to the leaders of Judah who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak, who's the king of Egypt. And he said to them, This is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me, therefore I now abandon you to Shishak. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is just. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, Since they've humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak, They will, however, become subject to him so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. Because Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned from him and he was not totally destroyed. Instead, there was some good... Sorry. Some good in Judah... Notice it was the humility and the repentance of Israel's leaders that prompted God to relent from his anger and not hand them over for the destruction by the Egyptians. As our hearts change, so does God's anger. But of course, it's not necessarily without consequence. Notice he'll, he'll no longer destroy them because of their humility, but they still will be subjugated. But why? Because God still wants to teach them something. 
They may have humbled themselves when they were faced with ruin and God embraced that humility, but they still had something to learn because even repented sin has lasting consequences. And again, this is because God values things higher than punishment and destruction. God values things more than just that devastating outpouring of anger. As we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. God doesn't want us to suffer from his righteous anger. Greater than that is the desire for salvation. But at what cost? Jesus died to pay the price on our behalf. That's the great extent that God was willing to go to avert his righteous anger from us at our sin. But of course, God also seeks this a balance between these two goals of forgiveness and salvation on the one hand and justice and anger on the other hand. As we read in Numbers chapter 14, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. See, God, as we said before, God isn't rash or abundant in his anger. Instead, he's liberal with things like love and forgiveness. That's what he values higher. But of course, that isn't at the expense of justice. Um, it's not that he just ignores all those things. It's not that his anger is unjustified. Um, he, he values both and he walks that line between the two. We can all relate to that desire for justice when we see wrongdoing and sin, especially in other people. And that's good and right. As, and, and God's love of forgiveness um, isn't counter to that. It doesn't negate those feelings, that desire uh, for justice to be done as God indeed desires that too. But for us, we have to remember that it's ultimately God's prerogative. As we read in Romans chapter 12, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friend, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God's reminding us that the outpouring of anger and of vengeance is God's responsibility, not ours. Our pursuit ought to be peace, mercy, help and love, even for our enemies who are presumably the objects of God's wrath. If we pursue these ends and leave room for God to do his work, 
Um, that's what uh, God is telling us to value. Don't get swept up in anger and don't let it lead you into sin. Don't be overcome with evil in that pursuit. Leave that to God. Yet it sometimes is our responsibility to be agents of God's righteous anger and judgment on those who do wrong. For example, we see in the Old Testament, God used nations like the Philistines and the Assyrians and the Babylonians to judge a sinful Israel. But also even today, our human governments are tasked with enacting justice on God's behalf, as we read in Romans 13. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So there's a whole lot of things that we see about God's wrath, God's anger, what causes it, what he does with it, what he values over and in contrast to it. Um, So following God's example... We ought not to be quick to anger, but rather be patient and let it be a gentle response to genuine sin in others and not ourselves. We should look beyond condemnation and prize mercy and forgiveness, relenting with repentance and humility, always seeking the best of the other, seeking reconciliation, seeking salvation and peace. But keeping in mind that balance with justice. Sin does deserve our anger and sometimes it is our responsibility either individually or collectively to meet out that justice when it's appropriate. These, this is, these are all the things we need to keep in mind when we see sin, when we feel angry at that sin. So when it comes to our own expression or experience of anger, there are two things that I think we need to consider when, if we want to distinguish it as righteous anger or sinful anger. Firstly, firstly we need to think about what is making us angry. We've established that God's righteous anger is a response to sin. <clears throat> Is our anger a response to genuine sin? Or is it sin? Is it anger? Are we angry at sin? Or is it maybe just something that hurts our pride? Or something that's just in conflict with what we might personally desire or our own self interest? Is that really what's making us angry? Is it just something that makes us feel bad but isn't necessarily wrong or sinful? Are we, wrong, are we angry at our sin or is it the sin of others? Are we getting angry at somebody else because of their sin or is it really our own sin that's really driving our anger? Who is the right target of our anger in these situations? 
But secondly, we need to think about what our anger leads us to do. What, what, are the, what are the outcomes of this anger? Are we simply responding with unkindness or violence? Or, like God, as we talked about, do we show patience, compassion and kindness? Are we seeking repentance or are we just looking for retribution? Are we indeed driven towards introspection and reflection of our own sin and of our own sinfulness. I think this point of introspection is the key point when it comes to our own anger. And I think it's one reason God declares that vengeance is his domain and not our own. Because it's right for us to feel uh, anger as a response to sin in the world. But we mustn't lose sight of the fact that we too are sinners and therefore we too are the objects of God's righteous anger. So to illustrate this idea, I want to look at two examples where someone's anger towards sin was misplaced. Firstly, from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 19. The context here is following David's sin uh, with Bathsheba and his ensuing cover-up by having her husband Uriah killed. We read, The Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord of the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Nathan here tells a story of clear injustice. And David naturally burns with righteous anger at this injustice and the man who is responsible. And he's ready and eager to mete out this righteous judgment on the man as a result of his sin. But in expressing this anger, David fails to consider himself and his own guilt. Indeed, as Nathan points out, David himself is the guilty man. The anger directed at the man in the parable ought to have been directed towards himself. Or more to the point, 
his anger at the man ought to have prompted David, before rushing to judgment, to look at himself and consider his own sinfulness, to recognise the similarity with that man's sin with his own. It's our our recognition of our own sin that ought to prompt us to seek the mercy, the forgiveness, the grace and reconciliation that God also seeks. And when we recognise our own sin, it's far more useful to us than when we recognise it in others. The second example, which we won't take the time to read, but it's from John chapter 8, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, when the Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery and challenge Jesus to condemn her to death according to the law. Anger at the sin of the woman, the adultery of the woman, is of course justified and and desiring justice over that is justified had they genuinely desired that. But Jesus challenges them when he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. We know the motives of the Pharisees in this story were not genuine. They didn't, weren't genuinely angry at her sin. But Jesus nevertheless uses this incident as an opportunity to remind them that when we feel righteous anger at the sin of another, we ought to be moved to remember our own sinfulness and to seek that same mercy that we would seek for ourselves in others and indeed to be moved to purge that sin from our own lives before we judge others. So that's what we need to be um, mindful of. In closing, I want to look quickly at a story that shows us once more this contrast between sinful or inappropriate anger and righteous, fruitful anger from 1 Samuel chapter 20. There's more to this, this story than we have time for, but to set the scene for the reading, um, God's withdrawn his support of King Saul due to his sin and he's anointed David in his place. As, as Saul's successor. But this leads to this period where Saul is still the king but has this, shall we say, a complicated relationship with David. In fact, Saul is trying to have David killed out of his jealousy for him. Um, Saul's son Jonathan, um, who is also David's friend, um, is caught in the middle of the, between the two and he's trying to negotiate peace between them. Jonathan and David work out a plan to suss out Saul's genuine intentions towards David, um, the details of which we needn't go into. But it brings us in the story to this feast day and David, understandably, is absent as we pick up in verse 24. So David hid in the field and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he's unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, 
Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favour in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he's not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spirit at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in a fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. And it goes on as they continue uh, with their plan. But notice in this story that both Saul and Jonathan become angry. But let's run through our two points about our own anger. Firstly, what makes them angry? For Saul, it's his perceived disloyalty of Jonathan, who he sees as siding with his enemy David over his father. But is that true? Is Jonathan really in the wrong by helping David? No, Jonathan's trying to help Saul as well by bringing peace between him and David. Saul has no justification for his anger except his own sin and his own downfall by his own sin. In contrast, Jonathan's anger is over Saul's unjust and indeed shameful treatment of David, who was God's anointed. Jonathan's anger at his father is justified. Secondly, what does their anger cause them to do? Saul hurls shameful insults towards his own son and his mother. And then when Jonathan gives him an opportunity to reflect on the source of his anger and recognise his own sin, does Saul listen? No, he gets even more angry and he tries to kill Jonathan, throwing a spear at his own son. How outrageous. In contrast, when Jonathan becomes angry, he removes himself from the situation. He takes a time out and he continues with his plan to help David escape the unjust treatment from Saul. In other words, he acts calmly and justly and righteously. So hopefully in that that incident we can see the difference between sinful anger and righteous anger what we're angry at and what that anger causes us to do. Um, And Nathan's going to talk a bit more about sinful anger next week, so I won't say any more about that. But just to close and to bring us back to where we started and those awful events in Annecy just over a week ago, when we see events like that, we're reminded that there is indeed sin and injustice in the world. And just like God, anger is a natural and just response to that sin and injustice. But also like God, 
We're expected to act justly with that anger, to act with patience, to act with mercy and love, to act with wisdom with that anger. Sometimes that's heroic action in the face of violence that saves lives. But more often, it's the pastoral work of correction, of rebuke, of mercy and grace. Just as God works with us in this way. And thank God for that.